0: we have with us today dr todd davenport this is one i've been really looking forward to you know this is going to be a little bit different perspective because where todd really focuses his energies is in population health and social determinants of health this is
1: pain refrain
0: Well welcome back everybody to another episode of Pain Reframed. I am Dr. Jeff Moore and as always with my friend, colleague, and co-host Dr. Tim Flynn. So what we see with the opioid epidemic is that certain regions of our country are having a particularly challenging time really even getting back to neutral let alone to begin making progress in so many areas of our country things are actually still getting worse even in light of everything we know about the inefficacy of opioid medication particularly in the long term to manage any sort of chronic or persistent pain we're still seeing ongoing prescription rise in certain areas and i think it's time that we have a conversation about what is it about certain areas their social determinants of health that really lead them to struggle to recover not only from opioid addiction issues, but from all sorts of different health-related factors of quality of life. Where Todd's background comes in is in the population health sphere, is in that determinants of health sphere, and you're going to hear Todd talk a lot about different areas that he believes you can be effective to budge the needle, not only on one topic, but all the way across the spectrum of health in your community. So really hope you enjoy this conversation with our friend and colleague, Dr. Todd Davenport. Todd, do you mind kind of giving the listeners just a little background? of kind of wh- how you got where you are and what your current setting is in the different hats that you wear professionally?
2: Thanks for the chance to have me on. I'm, I'm, I'm a, certainly a listener of the podcast and really, really enjoy it and, and appreciate the work that you guys are doing. And, and in short answer to your question about how I got here, I actually have no idea, but I can, I can give you just a little bit of background about, about what I do. Currently, uh, associate professor and program director at University of the Pacific, which is in Stockton, California. Uh, we're not in Oregon. Uh, we're actually about 90 minutes east of the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area here in California. We run a 25-month DPT program, so the DPT in, in two years is something that we've been doing for about the past 17 years. So we're really excited about concise educational models and, and so forth. So I, I still maintain a clinical practice at Kaiser Permanente uh, that's here in Stockton where I serve as a clinical specialist. And so I still see uh, mainly sort of a caseload consisting of community-based orthopedics, But have a chance to kind of do some staff mentorship and education along with that which is a lot of fun Mm -hmm. most recently uh in kind of my most recent incarnation of of sort of teaching research and and, and sort of service uh, to my community i got really interested in population health public health concepts finished my public health degree at uc berkeley a couple of years ago now time flies when you're having fun and so now just trying to kind of unpack what i learned and bring it into a new new, uh, situation and setting and and maybe kind of uh, help assist physical therapists with that transition towards more broader based population health thinking.
0: I've been following you for a long time now, so it's it's great to see how you have these really key elements in your history of understanding how to manage populations, and also a lot of interest in social determinants of health. And when we think about the opioid crisis that we're currently trying to get some sort of a strategy to counteract, those two things are going to be very very much in need. You know, an awareness of how do we move a large amount of people and how do we access individuals who maybe aren't in an environment where this type of information and overall resources are not prolific? Can you speak a bit, Todd, about what social determinant of health means. It's a hashtag that you've almost gotten co-branded with on Twitter. <laughs> you know, can, you, can you speak a bit about what exactly is that and how is that relevant in light of maybe the opioid epidemic and maybe just musculoskeletal rehab in general? So social determinants
2: of health basically acknowledges that there are complex interrelationships between individuals and their environments related to uh, health and health related behaviors. You know, we sort of want to introduce this model that's called the social ecology model or a social ecological model of health. You can imagine these concentric circles, right? And so the middle circle would be the individual. And so these are sort of personal characteristics that influence your behavior. So they're like things like your age, your mental status, biology, genetics, your general knowledge, your beliefs and perceptions, maybe culture-specific practices. So these are all sort of at the individual level. Physical therapists often, and medical practitioners in general, often interface with people one-on-one, right, at the individual level. That's actually, I think, a a place that we generally do well, we're generally pretty comfortable. Uh, But as you get sort of the next sort of ripple, right, in this concentric circle would be interpersonal interactions. So these are your immediate peers. These are your friends, your family co-workers maybe their classmates at school these are folks that provide you with some kind of a social identity and your immediate support system and there's a lot of information that's emerging to suggest that it's not necessarily even your friends but the friends of your friends who have a really significant interaction with regard to your own personal health choices it's almost like the three degrees of kevin bacon except it's your three degrees of health related behavior those all occur at the interpersonal level right Then you have the community factors. The community factors are things like, uh, you know, your housing, medical centers, your social media consumption, what in general do your schools and workplaces look like, your places of worship, your social networks that sort of influence your interpersonal interactions. And then finally, you sort of have like the broader society. So these are social and cultural norms. These are, you know, health policies. Uh, These are regulations. These are general opportunities for work and for education. These are local, state, and federal laws. And so these are the things that sort of exert this downward pressure on your community. Your community then exerts a downward pressure on your interpersonal network, and then your interpersonal network exerts an influence on your individual behaviors. And so again, I kind of mentioned earlier that in the social ecological model of health, medical practitioners in general and physical therapists are pretty comfortable at this individual level. And I wouldn't say that we're that we're great at it. It's not that we don't have anywhere we can grow with it. This is sort of, a, this is sort of our traditional wheelhouse. But I think where we have neglected, uh, both as sort of a physical therapy profession and kind of medical, the medical system in general, is you know, influencing interpersonal interactions, influencing our communities, and influencing our environments in our society. And so when you start talking about social factors that influence health, now you're, ta- you're talking about things that are top-down. You're not talking about sort of an inside-out approach where you're hoping to influence and, quote, transform society one person at a time, right? Now you're trying to think about the society that we live in and how do we build a healthier, better society that can then, uh, in turn, influence and support individual choices that are the right choices. So I do a lot of, on my soapbox, I do a lot of talking about making the right choice the easy choice. And that stuff happens not necessarily working with people one-on-one, but really working on things in a top-down approach so that you have an environment, a community, and interpersonal relationships that incentivize the right choice.
1: It makes me think about choice and about how we can consciously engineer choice into decision-making. And particularly when when it comes around this epidemic in pain, we have essentially engineered bad choice into our our decision-making process on system levels, right? Because if we look at the incentives to do something down from the top inward, starting with those social norms, really to the community, to the interpersonal, that there's all these top-driven pressures that actually get individuals in a position to make poor decisions around, say, my back hurts. And that example I'm thinking about, again, interpersonal, those around, well, maybe you need an MRI. The community may have, within the the Facebook community, oh, where where do I go? My back hurts to get an MRI. Of course, the social norms are getting stuff on TV that shows uh, with a Band-Aid and a laser, you can be free of back pain. We really do have all these downward pressures where when an individual has an event of some type, is getting very negative signals so how do you say or how do you go about engineering better choices you can use an example or you know just on a on a bigger picture
2: perspective some really key observations there tim i have always sort of looked at pain as as sort of a social and cultural expression of of distress through the individual right and and so we've we've created this this concept that um, that pain is undesirable and must be taken care of immediately. Sort of along with that have come, you know, sort of FDA policies that have allowed fast tracking of, of approval for these dangerous opioid medications without adequate scientific evidence that they're actually appropriately applied. Hat tip to, to Jeff for finding this study and, and, and posting it on the APHPT website. But, you know, the effect of opioid versus non-opioid medications on pain relief Related function in, in patients with chronic back pain or hip or knee osteoarthritis pain uh, results from the SPACE randomized clinical trial, which was just published uh, in JAMA by Krebs and colleagues, essentially found that the one-year outcomes of opioid medication were no better than non-opioid medications. But yet, you know, the, the FDA approval process really sort of didn't make space for, didn't wait for uh, this type of information to come out 15, 20 years ago. We also... We're measuring pain as a vital sign. Uh, Again, that was a regulatory issue that exerted a downward pressure that, again, caused us to start thinking about pain, I think, in a maladaptive way. Those are regulatory pressures that then exerted a a top-down influence on communities so healthcare center behaviors were driven toward that the laws related to direct to consumer pharmaceutical marketing uh, allowed for these dangerous opioid medications to be advertised directly to patients who then exerted pressure on their medical providers to provide them both created this maybe distorted picture of get out of pain quick sort of a way that that we get messages out there in our social media but also then turned into a lens that the only way that we could kind of consider pain was how quickly we could get out of it. So it became the self-fulfilling prophecy uh, and contributed maybe to some information siloing on our social media, which then, you know, sort of influenced that friend of a friend of a friend who maybe had a surgery that, that didn't go well, or maybe had back pain and was taking this opioid medication that, that made it maybe easier for them to function, at least in the short term, or, you know, that information then trickles back to you by way of your direct social network so that your individual choices are then sort of incentivized to be seeking out, you know, opioid medications, whether you're, you're medicating the quote, right kind of pain or not. In my residency program, I worked with a spine surgeon who used to, of course, this was 15 years ago now, who used to prescribe opioid pain medication. And I said, you know, doctor, how do you, how do you avoid the issue of addiction? I mean, these are addictive substances that we're dealing with here. And, and he said, you know, Todd um, the way I handle this is that we, we have a very frank talk right up front about the right kind of pain to medicate. You know, if you're medicating post-operative pain, post-surgical pain, really you shouldn't need these things for very long. But if you're medicating psychological pain or spiritual pain, that's not what these medications are for. And, And I kind of feel like that's how these medications have been used if you kind of take a look at that. So these top-down pressures have really sort of incentivized escaping the pain as soon as possible. And and really, opioid addiction is extreme flight. It's a, it's a measure of the allostatic load on a society. How do we build a better society? I mean, that's an open question. You kind of take a look at where are people sort of at risk? We do know that there are certain people at risk for opioid addictions. We know that There are certain income bands, uh, lower income bands, that tend to be uh, at greater risk for opioid addictions. We know that the consequences of misuse of opioids tend to be more negative socially for black and Hispanic folks, which are becoming a rapidly recognized segment of the population that is vulnerable to addictions. We're forced to take a look at some bigger societal issues uh, and to confront them. The opioid epidemic itself, if you kind of consider the analogy of a fire, the opioid medications themselves basically needed a substrate, right? And the substrate was, I believe, um, social, cultural, and economic conditions that are disadvantageous. If you're used to having a job at the mill, at the mine, at the manufacturing plant that you've had in your family for generations, and all of a sudden that's not there anymore, that's going to cause a significant amount of psychosocial distress. You know, I think what we're seeing is in many of the areas that in which the opioid uh, crisis is the most acute uh, have, you know, social, cultural, and economic conditions that are, that are still pretty unfavorable uh, as far as those things go.
0: When you kind of combine the individual areas that are having the hardest time um, and really are still actually progressively worsening from an opioid prescription and addiction standpoint are undeniably those that from a social determinants of health standpoint are less favorable. That That's quite clear in the trend across the country. And we see that parallel too. You know, Todd, you and I have interacted a lot um, with APHPT and just talked about general health it seems to parallel those same trends. I would be really curious for you to speak on with your background on... How to interject in a population, and you know we're armed with the right information. You know, we have the we have the research. We have you know we have what we need. It seems the clinical guidelines, all the info, all the means necessary. You know, for the thousands of folks who listen to the show that want to make a difference. You know, Todd, how would you recommend that we go about solving the problem? Are there are there a couple things? That you would encourage us to do, whether that be legislative or whether that be action items in your community, or whether it be the way that we use our own social media. What are the couple things you think that people can do if they want to make, not to be too cliche on you, make the world a better place? You know, what are the things that we can do to try to move forward some of those areas that are having a particularly hard time?
2: I appreciate this whole issue of, of make the world a better place. You have to realize I did my master's degree at Berkeley, so there's <laughs> there's still a lot of that. Uh, so that that resonates with me a. Lot. And I think it's a really, even though it's sort of a cliche and it seems kind of cheesy, I think it's a base motivation for why a lot of people pursue healthcare as a, as a discipline, as a career. And I think it's a good way to sort of start to engage folks as they, as they think about groups of people instead of individual people. But the first step is really to know yourself, to try and look around your own clinical setting and try and actively identify, you know, needs for improvement. So, you might start with language proficiencies. You might start with health education needs. You might start with implicit bias. I mean, all these things are really important social determinants of health care. And then really work on this stuff, thinking about how you might reduce social barriers to optimal health care outcomes, right? So limitations in, for example, social capital. And by social capital, I mean, do people have the the opportunity to have people in their lives who can kind of offload so they can look after themselves? Um, so you might contract with an Uber driver if someone can't get to your clinic or contract with a child care provider if people can't come because they have childcare care obligations. Um, you might engage in telemedicine for people who have limited time. And, it, you know, these, these make for happier patients. These are patient pleasing, you know, types of tools, but they also result in better health outcomes. And the reason that you're doing it is because you're directly addressing social determinants of health. And, you know, you might actually have some specialized knowledge and skills that you can leverage to address uh, social determinants of health in a broader world. So, for example, uh, if yoga is your thing, set up yoga in the park for all comers. It might improve the park. You might learn about the people in the park who you wish you weren't weren't in the park and to get direct them to services, you know, so, and, and to get to know your community. To that point, you should get to know your community. So PTs often know their patients and business owners often know their target markets, but no one really knows their communities, even if they live there. And so you should really ask yourself what your community needs to be healthier. So you can call your public health office or you can call your local nonprofit hospitals planning committee. That usually does a community health needs assessment that should be public facing and you can learn your community's biggest needs. And even if you live in your community and work there, they may be very different than what you thought they were. And the hard part is that there's no cookbook to that, but that there may be some unique social, political and regulatory barriers in your community that need to be fixed that may be different than mine, even though we share the same health outcomes. And I think to keep it simple. So, you know, most entrepreneurs, right, and I consider all PTs to be social, or all healthcare providers in, in, a, in a broader sense to be, to be social entrepreneurs. And so there's very few jumps off cliffs that turned into successful businesses. And, and my thinking about social entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship in general is that they really are thinking about the hard work of making a commodity out of a small change or a simple idea. So the ideas will complicate themselves through the details. We need to start thinking about adding by subtracting. So we need to find how we can reduce the frequency of health problems. So reduce the frequency of people in pain. Think about how, as the podcast is entitled, we can reframe pain. Find out how we can raise revenues for businesses from reducing presenteeism and absenteeism. The presenteeism is just people who are at work but not performing. This is the zombie workforce. How do we keep people at work? How do we keep them functioning? Either uh, because of improvement in their pain or despite their pain. Um, But we're not gonna get into the population health space in pain by adding costs or adding charges. We're gonna make money by saving someone else some money. And I also think we need to go to where the money is. For every person on this planet, there's someone or some organization that has a vested interest in keeping them healthy. And those people uh, or organizations can be good resources for contracts and grants. So, for example, employers need employees to be productive at work and to be at work in order to to meet their obligations and and their budgetary commitments, and so that would be a good place to start. And even third-party insurance companies, as painful as they can be to try and extract payment from, can actually be part of our solution. So the nonprofit insurers need to distribute some of their funds for community benefits and maintain their tax status. So you might look for community benefit grant opportunities in the way of the idea of addressing pain and pain-related perceptions in order to you know sort of improve you know pain-related health outcomes within a population and you might pitch that to a third-party insurance company through their community benefit uh, mechanism so where you couldn't get paid by providing clinical services you might be able to provide upstream clinical service and it will be up to us to realign our actions Uh, with the incentives implied by those resources. So, you know, just some general ideas about kind of how to get started with this uh, in in terms of sort of evaluating sort of where, where you are, where you're at, where your clinic is, what special resources you have. Start with the simple ideas, don't make them complicated because they'll become complicated enough and then don't be afraid to think outside the box in terms of sort of traditional funding mechanisms. I do
1: think that as you build new programs or get into your community, the, the alliances have shifted. I really think that it's well agreed that we have a sickness, illness-based model. And yet we have many players that are incentivized, as you said, to not have that model. The intermediaries are probably the least incentivized, i.e. insurance, et cetera. I mean, there's really, it's a transactional system. So the more transactions, the more money that system makes. So I do think that ultimately the disruption within that supply chain, if you will, is necessary. And that's direct to employer, that's direct to consumer, direct to the community is where I think folks can make the biggest dent quicker. And again, not thinking huge, but as you stated, thinking one step at a time of two people is community. 10 people is a large part of your community and not having to think large scale to start with, rather a
2: small step to get the ball rolling. I do think that there's an element of health messaging that goes along with this, because I think when you talk with people, you realize they think differently. And when you start talking to populations, you realize they silo themselves along kind of similar health attitudes and therefore uh, susceptibility to different types of health promotion messages. And so the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation actually did some, did some work on this. And my community, Stockton, California, was sort of one of the Sentinel communities that they did some more specific work. And, and what was really interesting here was, was to kind of take a look at the type of health messages that people are, are responsive to. And I think as we start changing society's mind about pain, we have to sort of realize that there's not going to be one way that we do it, and not everyone is going to listen to the same type of a message. And to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, just in general, about 14% of my own community, which is which is pretty similar nationally, are what would be called committed ad- activists. So these are folks that are really in tune with healthcare disparities, the importance of these social factors that predict health. They're civically engaged, and they just sort of believe down the line that, that we really need to improve health equity and improve the public's health. The community health proponents tend to be very interested in uh, the importance of social determinants, but that instead of being so, so focused on personal health, you know, they're, they're a little less civically engaged specifically on health. They're sort of in the mix. They don't think so much about personal health, they care about the health of their communities, but they're, they're a little bit less in the way of committed advocates. There is a sizable portion of my community that cares about you know, equity. They just care about equity in general. They don't care about health messages so much, but maybe they care about other equity messages like law enforcement or uh, e- equitable education. And they like the idea of equity and solidarity, but not so much focused on health. And so these three groups are really allies for us. We could use them in different ways to mobilize them to start moving the middle of the community. The majority of my community are are health skeptics. There are folks that believe that the equity, population, public deal is is less important than what business is doing, and so they don't. They're not so in tune with health disparities, but they generally they generally want health to be a federal priority, but they don't think the government can do it. However, they think the private sector might be able to assume the responsibility. And so this is a group that might be susceptible to messaging that the private sector could be doing more. There are folks that are, that are personal responsibility champions, that these are people who are less concerned about equity, social solidarity, and they, they look at health as just that individual level response. Uh, so the social ecology model of health does not exist to about one-fifth of, of my neighbors here in Stockton. And that can be a challenge. How do you motivate these folks to sort of think about uh, maybe broader issues that could uh, influence personal responsibility? And then there are folks that you could you could just charitably call nihilists. They just don't care about health. <laughs> They're complacent. They doubt the existence of healthcare disparities. They're not motivated by health at all. That's about 10 to 15% of my neighbors and not too far off from the country as a whole. So, you know, here again, as we start thinking about this stuff, you know, not only are we going to have to start thinking about what we as healthcare practitioners who favor non-pharmacologic interventions can bring to the table in terms of you know, education, knowledge, and skills, but we have to think about the right health messaging, and we have to realize that there may be five or six health messages that are the right thing to do. Uh, and that might cause a, a response in our communities.
0: I really appreciate this conversation because I think too often we, we look at a single intervention right, or a single goal. Like we want to get people to take less opioids. Well, that, that's a great idea. And the research would, would support our position. But I think if we don't zoom out and admit that we're going to have a harder time in certain areas than others. And then thinking about well, what could we do to those areas to make them more receptive to that goal. I think we're going to have a hard time moving forward in a really unified fashion.
2: Yeah, absolutely. As we go forward, it's good to have marketing campaigns, right? That's health communications at at the end of the day, where our knowledge is translated to the broader public will be through good marketing campaigns. I think we need to be careful about how we market our profession and what we do. I am fine with choosing PT. I am in favor of getting PT first, two very popular hashtags. I do think that we need to acknowledge that physical therapists are not the experts at everything, that we need to be okay with giving up or sharing our expertise. And in that regard, we're going to get that respect for autonomy back. I think for too long, our profession has really relied on this independence message that we're going to be autonomous through just sort of doing it all and doing it well. And I think we need to acknowledge in this space that that we're not the only answer, that, yeah, we might be able to change someone's mind about the need for you know opioid medication upstream, but acknowledging that now the major driver of opioid-related fatalities are illegal opiates. They're synthetic you know, opiates, they're heroin. This is a problem that has now developed from an iatrogenic problem now into a, an issue where through maybe regulatory pressure, because you know it's harder to get opioid uh, prescriptions, there's more hoops to jump through now in a lot of organizations. That that driver now is people are, are looking for synthetic fentanyl and they're looking for heroin and uh, you're seeing uh, overdoses increase partially as a result of the potency of these illegal medications. You know, our marketing needs to reflect that and it needs to reflect that shift. And we need to start cultivating fellow travelers in addiction advocacy groups, you know, among the American psychological and psychiatric associations in order to help cultivate a more diverse message that, you know, we do have a role and we absolutely have a critical role, but that, you know, that message might not resonate for everyone uh, just based on where you are in the addiction cycle. And it might not resonate with you just based on sort of your susceptibility to health messaging.
0: I'll be honest, Todd. Social determinants of health was something I was very unfamiliar with even a year ago. And watching you and engaging with you, I've learned a lot. And my my priorities, and I think my overall sort of beam of attention has shifted because of it. If others want to track you and what you're doing, can you leave them some information about where they can find your work or where they can follow you on social media, things of that nature?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for the chance to kind of plug some of that. I skipped a lot of the general overview material because it's actually in a free two-hour course course. that's on the APTA Learning Center. If you search my name, you will see that I talk about social determinants of health and sort of what they are, and I provide a lot of different examples kind of across uh, health and healthcare. and so I would invite you to take a look at that. Certainly, if you have questions, if I don't know the answer, I'll find someone smarter than me to figure it out. You can tweet me. I overshare on Twitter at sunsopeningband, S-U-N-S, O p e n i n g b a n d. It's the worst Twitter handle. It's too long. It's clunky.
0: Todd, where, does, also- Todd, where does that come from? I always wondered that. All right, so
2: it's an esoteric reference to a Pearl Jam lyric because <laughs> I also have a hashtag I've squatted on called Grunge PT. <laughs> I am a giant fan of '90s rock, particularly that origi- originated in my native Northwest. In fact, I tweeted out the lyric a couple of days ago, so there's there's an Easter egg on for you if you're interested. Find something better to do. And so those are probably the ways to, to reach me and, and check it out. We're doing some work kind of in this space, writing up some perspective pieces for, for the physical therapy literature in concert with a number of folks who are, who are interested in this stuff. Uh, so look for us hopefully soon in a, in a peer-reviewed PT journal near you
0: awesome. Awesome. Well, Todd, thanks so much. Again, I think the zoom out is critically important for long-term success. So really appreciate you giving your perspective and background. And I'm sure a lot of listeners are going to reach out and connect going forward.
2: Yeah, I hope so. And and thanks for the chance to talk about this stuff. We want to do the right thing for our communities and build a better world. And I I just hope that people will engage that uh, and don't ignore it because it seems cliche, but it's the reason you got into this to begin with. Make sure that you reach out to Form your tribe. And if there's anything I can do to help, certainly I'd I'd love to do it.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Todd. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks, Tim. I hope all
1: of us take from that this idea that each of us can be of some use and make a difference, whether we're listening from a perspective of a patient, a provider, community member. We can start this movement and continue this movement wherever we're at in the space of our community, because really today's conversation was about community. It was about getting out into the community, that community of our friends and family, that community that is within our neighborhood and the community that is within the structure and political structure within our community, that any of those areas we can be involved in. And it doesn't take a lot, it takes just showing up. And I encourage everyone listening today to maybe make a commitment to show up in some way around this topic of pain and suffering in your community. So with no further ado, thank you so much for joining us this week on Pain Reframed.
2: Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.